My name is Jeremy, and I get to introduce our speaker for this morning. Dr. Danny Loffelholtz has been on staff with Grace Community Church in Tyler, Texas, since September of 2007. Originally as the associate pastor, and now he serves as the pastor of the University Boulevard campus. Prior to his arrival at Grace, Danny served as the director of Pine Cove Bluffs Family Camp and Shores Camp from 2005 to 2007. And before Pine Cove, he got to serve as a youth pastor for three years at Grace Community Church in Bartersville, Oklahoma. Danny's undergraduate work uh, was done at University of Central Oklahoma, and he completed his Master of Arts and Ph.D. in pulpit communication and expository preaching at Trinity Theological Seminary. Danny and his wife, Kara, who got to be with us today, good to see you, are parents of three boys, Eli, Nate, and Thad. And in his free time, first and foremost, Danny loves to spend time with his family. And then he is one of those crazy people that likes to participate in marathons. I added that part crazy. Um, and he loves coaching his boys in their particular team sports. Would you give a warm welcome to Dr. Danny Loffelholtz? Come on up there. Good morning, Frisco Bible. It's good to be with you this morning. Um, Got to be honest with you, I, I practiced that. I did not want to say good morning, Grace Community Church. I did not want to offend you. Um, it is good to be with you this morning, and it's, it, it truly is, and, and I, I mean this, uh, it is an honor to, um, to be here with you, to worship together with you, and to uh, have a guy um, like Wayne Broderick, who I admire and consider a friend, uh, for him to share his pulpit in this way is, is a true honor. It really is. Uh, as Jeremy mentioned, that my, uh, my wife and boys are here with us this morning, and so um, I am the poster child of marrying outside of my league. All the married men said, amen, right? Okay. Join the club. Uh, that, that is us there. It's my beautiful wife, Kara, on the right. Our oldest, Eli, there in the middle in the red shirt. Uh, there's Nate uh, to the left, and then our youngest, Thad, there down there at the bottom right. Uh, Kara and I love raising boys. Uh, we, uh, we, we, we have a lot of testosterone in our house. It's the only way I can say it. Um, I said in the first service that we actually have no pink in our house, and somebody politely pointed out you're wearing a pink shirt today, so I'm a liar. Um, sorry. But we, uh, we are not fans of Frozen, all right, in our house. Uh, we realized not too long ago that every picture frame in our living room does not have the glass in it. That is not by choice. It's simply called Raising Boys. So we, uh, we know boys. We love, love investing in our boys, and um, we're, we're awfully proud of them. I'm here this morning because in 2007, I was actually on staff at Pine Cove Camps. It's a Christian camp outside of Tyler, Texas, here in East Texas, and, uh, and I met a guy named Wayne Broderick. He was the family camp speaker as I was a director of one of their family camps, and I got to know Wayne during our time together at Pine Cove, and, and what I knew was um, my time at Pine Cove was coming to an end, and I was actually about to transition off staff there and go on staff with Grace Community Church in Tyler. I was going to be an associate pastor, and so Wayne being at Pine Cove and having time with him, I just wanted to soak up as much pastoral wisdom as I could from him, and the wisdom he gave, gave to me proved to really be invaluable. I mean, it was, it was really um, very meaningful for me. And shortly after that time, again, I went on staff at Grace there in Tyler, and, and I was going to learn underneath the pastor for two to three years uh, because I'd never done anything like this before, and, and I really respected the, the man who hired me. 
And three months into me being there on staff, he accepted a job in Colorado Springs, and I stepped in as the pastor uh, there. Got thrown in the deep end, had to learn how to swim really quick, made a lot of mistakes, learned a lot, got my tail kicked a lot as a pastor. However, I kept going back to some of the wisdom that Wayne gave me. And so I, I, I greatly admire and appreciate your pastor. He's the real deal. What you have on stage is what you get off stage with him as well. Uh, I, I love him for that. Wayne Broderick is a good man. And so what I didn't realize, though, as a young pastor, is that over the next couple of years, our church and the demographics of our church were about to change greatly. We started to see a lot of college students show up at our church. Uh, we saw a lot of young professional singles, which we now coin as yo pros. And that has become like an idol for them, that title. They want to be called a yo pro at our church. Uh, we saw an influx to such a degree that six out of every ten people in our service, just our service, not our church, but our service, fall between the ages of 18 and 29 years old. And so who statistically is not coming to church in America, for whatever reason, start coming to our church. And uh, we are highly immature as a church. We are. Um, it's, it's kind of funny because we have said if you're 30 or older, you're old at our church. So me at 42, man, I'm on the verge of retirement um, at our church. It's so funny because I will say things um, like handwritten letter, and they have no clue what I'm talking about. So I'll contextualize and say it's like a handwritten email. And they're like, oh, yeah, I totally get that. Yeah, I'm tracking with you now. My, our AV guy, our sound guy, last week informed me. He said, hey, um, when you graduated college, I was in third grade. <laughs> so if you want to submit your resume to be a, an AV guy at our church, we have an opening now. So um, he is, he's no longer with us. Um, so it's fun. I, I love it. Um, we love where we're at and what God is doing there. And it's also, again, it's good to be here with you this morning. It is. What, what I want to do this morning, I want to talk about an implication that you and I receive an implication of our, our redemption, our salvation. When we give our life to Jesus, when you, when you believe in the gospel, you see your need for a Savior, you give your life to Christ, there is an implication there that is given to you at that moment that I feel like, even in my own life, that, that we as Christians don't fully grasp or maybe we're not even aware of. And the implication I'm talking about is what is our full identity in Christ? Who does Jesus see us as now? And then what is he trying to do in our life to grow us in this identity? So my gospel story, my testimony, whatever you want to call it, um, starts in Bartlesville, Oklahoma. I grew up in a great family. My sister is actually here with her family. They live in Allen. I grew up in a great family. We were a church-growing family um, as, as I grew up. Uh, we were in church most Sundays, even on vacation at times. We would find a church that we would, we would go to. And my mom and my dad and my sister all, I think, got it. They, they understood what Christianity was about. They had given their life to Jesus. They placed their faith and hope and trust in him. But for me, all I understood growing up was religion. I, I knew moralism. I knew religion. Uh, I, I knew a lot of the right Christian lingo to share. However, it may surprise you when I say this, I grew up in church, but I, I wasn't a believer in Christ. 
Then my eighth grade year, I got involved in a Bible study. It was with a parachurch ministry called K-Life. You may have heard of it before. I think they actually have them in the Metroplex. It's a branch off of Canicut Camps, which is out of Missouri. And the, a guy who was on staff with K-Life began to lead this Bible study. Now, I went to this Bible study with my friends. I remind you, eighth grade, okay? Solely because uh, they had donuts at Bible study. It was at 7 a.m. on Monday mornings. Like, eighth graders don't even know that exists, right? Went there for donuts. We watched 35 minutes of Sports Center. I was like, that's cool. And I endured 15 minutes of Bible study. Actually, didn't even have a Bible at the time, but I, I went to Bible study, just kind of endured it. Not a believer. And this guy who's leading this group, he kind of built and earned my trust through playing basketball with me. And he kept sharing the gospel with me, built a friendship with me, just kept sharing the gospel with me all throughout my 8th grade year, ninth grade year, and then into 10th grade, spring break 10th grade year. He invited me to go along with 200 junior high and high school students on a ski trip. 200 junior high and high school. Anybody want to be a chaperone for that trip? No thanks. I went on the trip solely because I'd never snow skied before, and I wanted to learn how. And the last night I was on that trip, the Lord pursued my heart, opened the eyes of my heart. I surrendered my life to Jesus. I saw my need for a Savior, placed my faith and my trust in Jesus. But there, there's a problem here for me is because when I gave my life to Christ, nobody told me that at that moment, my identity changed. At that moment, I actually received a new identity. At that moment, it started, it kick-started a process to where Jesus would identify me as something new, but also begin to transform me into something new during that time. And I, I want to take us here in, in the scriptures to a, a great example of a, a group of people in the city of Antioch, Acts chapter 11, who for a, a period of time, I think they start to grasp what we're going to talk about this morning. They begin to understand also for them, they had a new identity they had a new aim in their life that Jesus would give them. So let's go Acts chapter 11. We'll start down in verse 16. We'll read 16 through 26 here. And let's look at the, a group of men and women in the city of Antioch and, and what they learn and what we can learn from them as well. Starting out in verse 19. And now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen, Stephen the martyr, traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except the Jews. Verse 20. But there were some of them, men and women, or excuse me, the men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also, preaching the Lord Jesus. The hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord now, just a reminder, a little refresher here, that the, early on, after Jesus died, rose from the dead, ascended into heaven, sent his spirit down to live in the life of people who gave their life to Christ, the church and Christianity at that point really is hubbed in Jerusalem. And you think about Acts 1-8, some of the last words that Jesus shared, he said, go, Share the gospel in Jerusalem and then the region of Judea to Samaria, even the enemies of the Jews, and to the ends of the earth. The problem is it took some time for the believers to start moving outside of Jerusalem and to share the gospel, but that, that now is what's happening. 
People started, ordinary men and women started to travel to places like Antioch and to share about Jesus. And you see what happens in the city of Antioch. A lot of people start to give their life to Christ and the gospel starts to blow up the city of Antioch. Look what happens. Verse 22. And the report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. So Peter, leader of the first century church, is hearing that, wow, even in Antioch, people's lives are being changed by Christ. And when he came and he saw, or excuse me, in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. So they sent Barnabas up there, and when he came and he saw the grace of God, I love that statement, he was glad, and he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. So Barnabas goes there, and, and he begins to see, wow, this is actually really happening. People's lives are being changed by Christ. Then look at 25 and 26. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas doesn't know what to do now. There's a lot of young believers, and we need, we need to disciple them. We need to help them grow in Christ. So what does he do? It says, so Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul, otherwise known as, help me out, Paul, right? So he goes to Tarsus. Now remember, that Tarsus was the hometown of Paul. Paul came to know Christ on the road to Damascus, and I always thought growing up that, oh, he became a missionary immediately after he became a believer. And that's not exactly how it all played out. Now, he does go into the city of Damascus after coming to know Christ, and he tries to share what little of the gospel he knew. That doesn't go well. So he travels to Jerusalem. He begins to share about Jesus in Jerusalem. That actually does not go as well also. And so Peter, some of the early church leaders, the disciples, pull Paul aside and like, hey, bro, um, we need to get you out of here. Why don't you go back home for a little while? So they send him back home to Tarsus. And most scholars would agree he stayed in his hometown for 7 to 11 years before this moment. Doing what? Well, his occupation was he was a tent maker. So he's basically for 7 to 11 years working at REI, making tents, man. That's what he's doing. And, and God is preparing him, I think, that whole time for this launch on his missionary journeys, and it would start actually in Antioch. So Barnabas knocks on his door and says, hey, I know it's been a little while. Remember me? We need you. Something cool is happening in Antioch right now. Jesus is changing lives. We need you to go back and help disciple some of these young believers. It says, when he had found him, verse 26, he brought him to Antioch, and I love this part, and for a whole year, they met with the church, and they taught a great many people. Anybody want to be a part of that Bethmore Bible study? We got Barnabas and Paul leading this study for an entire year. I think they're unpacking the scriptures. I think they're, they're unpacking the implications of the gospel. They're learning more about who Jesus is and what he has done, what that means for their lives. And look at the result. And in Antioch, the disciples were first called, help me out, called what? For the first time, for the first time in human history, the term Christian is associated with somebody. For the first time, the term Christian is associated with somebody. And, and it was used not to describe people as religious, which is fine. It's used not to describe people as moralistic, which is fine. And it's used not to describe nice people, 
And it's not even used to describe people who go to church. So in the region of Texas in which I pastor, in which Texas is its own nation, right? Texans, you guys believe that. Um, you give an amen to that, right? Um, but in East Texas, there's so much cultural Christianity. Everybody goes to church. And when you say Christian, they immediately identify that as somebody who attends church. The problem is in my church, there are a lot of people who do not know Jesus. But they go to church because grandma brought them when they were a kid. Uh, because that's what they grew up doing as a family. They went to church, which is fine. That's great. It's a good thing. But according to the scriptures here, that's not what a Christian is entirely. This is what the word means in the Greek. It literally means little Christ. The term Christian here means little Christ. What does that mean? It means here in the city of Antioch, for this year, these people were growing in their faith, understanding more of who Jesus is and what he has done on their behalf. Their lives are being changed to such a degree that the only way that people could describe them in the city of Antioch, and it appears to be they were not even the ones who gave themselves this title, but it was the men and women of Antioch, maybe even non-believers, who looked at their lives and they said, I guess the only way we could describe these guys, these men and women, they reflect the one they say that has changed their life. So we're going to call them little Christ, Christians. So I shared that I became a believer that sophomore year of high school on the ski trip, and that ski trip was spiritually a life changer for me, but also it, it provided a life experience that uh, was very interesting. So again, I never skied before, wanted to go on this trip. Uh, they informed me on the way up there that uh, from Bartlesville, Oklahoma to Buena Vista, Colorado, that I had to take a half day of ski school so I could learn how to ski. Now, I'm a sophomore in high school. I'm macho. That's not cool at all. So I thought, oh, it's going to be me and a bunch of little kids in this little ski class. It was fine. And I remember having this thought. If the slopes that I learned how to ski on in ski school, they weren't really that bad. So maybe at the top of the mountain, it's probably the same, right? I'm a sophomore in high school. Give me a break. I have no logical thinking at all as a sophomore. And so I talk a friend of mine into um, joining me on my little adventure. I would say not skiing down the mountain, but maybe tumbling down the mountain is a better way of putting it. So we go, we, we get on the lift, and, and as we're riding up the lift, I remember that day was not cold. It was kind of abnormally warm for Colorado. So I didn't have a big puffy ski coat on. I actually had a windbreaker. Now, this was the early 90s, so I had a Reebok jacket. Yeah, huh? Waiting for that to come back in style. And so I had this Reebok jacket and had all these ties on it. And, and I had a tie on the, on the very back of my jacket. And so we're, we're approaching um, the place where we're going to push off a lift and, and tumble down into the ground. And so we're, we're getting close to our destination. I remember I'm going through all what I was taught in ski school. Tips up, ski tips up, poles out, ready to push off. So we arrive at our destination, I push off, I go nowhere. My friend goes tumbling to the ground. I push off a second time, I go nowhere. I push off a third time, I go nowhere, and I remember having this thought. They did not teach me this in ski school. Like, what is going on? And if you've ever been skiing, you know this truth about ski lifts. They do not, they don't stop, right? 
And the ski lift operator is not cluing into what's going on, and he just allows the thing to keep going. And so I push off a fourth time, and what I didn't realize was my tie on my jacket in the very back was actually hooked onto the middle slat of the ski chair. Yes, so I go tumbling off, actually, of the lift, but I'm hooked on. The ski lift continues to rise in the air. I look like Superman floating through the air like this. Still had my poles, still had my skis. Proud of that, okay? So I'm hanging on to this. My jacket went from being an extra large to an extra small. It like zipped up real tight around my waist here. Finally, the ski lift operator, this is a true story, okay? Ski lift operator realizes what's going on. He stops, and I'm probably 15 to 20 feet in the air just dangling like this. I look down, nobody's moving. Everybody's looking up, and I, I, I'm sure this is what their thought was. Wow, he is from Oklahoma. Wow. So there you go, Texans. There you go. I'm giving that one free of charge this morning. And then all of a sudden, these five guys in red coats, known as the ski patrol, run out, and they, and they said, hey, can you pull yourself up on the lift, and, and I was able to pull myself, and I got unhooked. They brought out an extension ladder, and they actually swung it and knocked my skis off, and then they said, jump, we'll catch you. I was like, you guys look like four ants in the snow right now. So I did, I jumped, they actually did catch me. But just think about this. I had everything that day to make me look like a good skier. Everything. Had the pants, had the jacket, had the goggles, had the skis, had the poles, had the stocking cap. I had everything that made me look like a good skier. But realistically, the thing I knew nothing about was skiing. I think it's really easy for us as believers in Christ to kind of fall, spiritually speaking, fall into that same trap. That, that we can know Christian lingo. We can, we, can, we can know all the right terms to kind of throw out. We can attend church. We can sign up for Bible studies. It's great. We can go on mission trips. We could be rocking the WWJD bracelet still. We could do all these things to give off an, an outward exterior appearance that we look like a maturing believer in Christ, yet inwardly, our hearts can be numb and hollow to who Jesus is, what he has done, what that means for our life as well. And I think the difference between somebody who appears very Christian is it's very different from somebody who is growing as a little Christ. What do we mean by growing as a little Christ? I mean, somebody who is in the process of more and more in your life thinking more like Jesus. Living more like Jesus, speaking more like Jesus, being bold more like Jesus. What about this one? Being bothered by the things that Jesus is bothered by. What about being motivated more and more by the things that motivate God? To the degree that we begin to look more and more like Christ, where people look at us and say, little Christ. little Christ. Paul wrote this to the church in Corinth, 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, as he talked to this, another group of believers. He exhorts them in this way. He says, We all with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord. I, I wish we had more time to camp out there. 
says, for you believers in Corinth, you hold the glory of the Lord within you. But then he says that you, you are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. What image is he talking about? It's Jesus. In other words, Paul says to these men and women in Corinth that had placed their faith in the gospel, he says to them, now you're growing in the image of Christ. In other words, you're growing to be a little Christ. It's a slow process. God is patient. God is full of grace. At times it can be a hurtful process in a good way. But he is doing this for the aim and for the, the reason, and for, for the purpose of growing you to be more and more like him. To, be, to rest in your identity and to be known as a little Christ. So here's my question this morning, fellowship. Fellowship, how about this, all right? How about Frisco Bible? There we go. Do you feel like in your life right now, you're currently seeing evidence of your life being changed to be more like Christ. No Sunday school answers allowed right now, right? But being really honest this morning, as you assess your life, do you see evidence? And it, it may be slow, small, or maybe in big chunks right now. Do you see your life growing to reflect Christ more and more and more? Do you see that in your life? think it can be terribly hard for us. Again, it can be a slow process. And I think for most of us, if we are honest this morning, it's a struggle at times. Well, why is it a struggle to see your life growing as a little Christ? Why? I want to give you two, I think, very common reasons why we struggle with growing as a little Christ. Here's one to consider this morning. Maybe you could relate to this one. I think we can grow or we can struggle in our growth and being a little Christ because far too often we simply settle for being defined by someone or something other than Jesus. That far too often in our lives that, that we're okay with settling for something of this world or someone of this world defining us, somebody other than Jesus. Like for example, we could fall into a trap over time to where we really believe that our career is our primary identity in life. Now, if you have a career, that's awesome. That's great. I think that's a gift from God. But it will never define your life in the way that Jesus does as a little Christ. Or maybe we settle for our personality defining us. So maybe some of you, you have a big personality, an engaging personality. Man, you walk into that room, you own a room. Maybe people magnetize towards you, like they love being around you, which is great. That's how God has wired you. That's not your identity. That doesn't make up primarily who you are. As a believer now, you are a little Christ, which is far greater than your personality. Or maybe you've settled for uh, your accomplishments being your primary identity in life. A degree is great, it's hard work, it's a great achievement, 
It can't hold the weight of being your primary identity in life. Or maybe for, uh, for some of us, it's our kids. As I mentioned before, I love coaching our kids. And I, I've seen something that is disturbing, is troubling, especially on the baseball field. When grown men find their identity in how their kids perform on the field or on the basketball court or on the stage. Our kids are n- were never meant to carry the weight of being our identity. That will crush your kids. And how messed up is it to see grown men wanting their kids' performance to be their identity? Give me a man who finds his identity as a little Christ over some dad who's doing that to his kids. Maybe you've found yourself in a place to where you look to status, social status, economic status as being your primary identity. It will never measure up to being a little Christ. Maybe it's your family heritage, which is great. It's good to be proud of your family heritage. But now you've been brought in through the gospel. You've been brought into a greater family. It's called the family of God. The multi-ethnic, multi-generational family of God as a little Christ. How many of you remember this, the movie Chariots of Fire? To be honest, there we go. Man, it's good to be in a, a room full of people who actually know what that movie is. <laughs> Thank you. I mean, if anything, that's my takeaway from this weekend. Um, no. <laughs> remember the 1924 Olympics? Scottish track athlete Eric Liddell, also another Scottish track athlete, Harold Abrams, Liddell is kind of the primary person in the story because if you remember that he refused to run and compete in the finals, the 100 meters, because it was on a Sunday. He was trying to observe the Sabbath and and he stayed back and he refused to run that day. But then the guy named Harold Abrams, who who also was a, a, a competitor in that event, who was also a professing believer in Christ, said, no, I'm actually going to run in that. And the point is not that he, he chose to run. The point is why he chose to run. Abram said this on why he chose to run. He said this. He said, I, raise, I will raise my eyes and look down that corridor four feet wide with ten lonely seconds, here's the part, to justify my whole existence. He said, I'm going to run Because what I do over the next 10 seconds will actually justify my existence. It will justify my life. And we see how that plays out for both of these men. For Liddell, he walked in freedom because he knew he was a little Christ and knew his identity. Abrams found himself in a dark place because he looked to an accomplishment here in this life to be his identity in life. When he missed that Christ all along was saying, I've given you a greater identity. I've given you a greater, go accomplish things. That's great. But your accomplishments were never meant to carry the weight of your identity. Jesus, through the gospel, sufficiently supplies it for us. But we can struggle with growing as a little Christ when we start to look to things or someone in this world to be our identity. But I think another reason is this. I think we can also struggle because we forget who we are and whose we are. 
Now, let me clarify. I realize whose we are is horrific grammar, okay? I live in East Texas, so it flies really well there. Um, it does. No. We forget who we are and whose we are. Kara and I share this with our boys all the time. All the time. Don't forget who you are and whose you are. Don't forget who you are in Christ. You're a little Christ now. Don't forget whose you are. You belong to Christ now. Paul actually reminds the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 20, he reminds them of this truth. He says, you're not your own, last part of 19, and then he goes on, he says, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. I love what Paul says, he says, Who's are you? Who, who do you belong to now? You belong to Jesus. When you give your life to Christ, you no longer belong to yourself. You belong now to Christ, that's who you belong to. But we can tend to drift from that over time. I mean, if you've been in the ocean, for 20 minutes, and you look back to, to the shore and look to, to try to find your stuff, where's your stuff? 20 yards down this way, down shore. Because over time, you just begin to drift, and we can drift to places that, to where we start to say things like this, and we forget whose we are and, and who we are. We can start to say things like, I'm beautiful because of my outward appearance. Now you're beautiful because Christ has made you beautiful from the inside out. Or we drift to a place where we start to say, well, I'm valuable because of the amount of money in my bank account. If you have a great amount of money in your bank account, awesome. Or we say, well, I'm not valuable because I don't have much in my bank account. Your bank account does not define you. Christ does. Or we drift to a place to where we say things like, I'm somebody if I, because I performed well in my career, in life, as a parent. It's great if you performed well. But Christ performed for you on the cross because you were dead apart from him. Or we start to say things like, well, you know what, I'm shameful because of my past mistakes, sins, failures, I feel like people are giving me high degrees of criticism right now, so I just, I'm nothing. I'm nobody. You know what? Apart from Christ, you are nobody. But because of Jesus, you are now somebody. You're a little Christ that has infinite value and significance that only Jesus can give you. Think about the words of Brendan Manning in the Ragamuffin Gospel. He wrote, Define yourself radically as one loved by God. This is the true, I, true self, Manning says. Every other identity is illusion. I, I love that. He says, Define yourself as one radically beloved by God. God has loved you. God has died for you. God has brought you in into a relationship, a new covenant with him. And when you start to find that as your primary identity, who you are in Christ, then every other identity becomes an illusion here on this earth. That's who you are now. You are now a little Christ. So the question becomes this morning, how do we grow? If we, we believe that, yes. Do we struggle with it? I'm sure all of us do. But how do we practically grow to be more and more like Jesus? Well, let's go back to the church in Antioch. Look at that last verse, verse 26. 
How did they grow to be more like Christ? Again, it says for a whole year they met with the church. They, Paul and Barnabas. And you may say, well, um, that's kind of unfair. I would take Wayne Broderick with Apostle Paul. Don't tell him I said that, by the way. That, that will inflate his ego. Um, no, I, I don't really believe it mattered who was teaching. I think it, the content and the work of the Holy Spirit in their lives was the X factor. So what was the content? I think at that time, they were unpacking the greatness of the gospel for a year. In community, together. And they're unpacking what it meant for Jesus to come and to die for them, to rise from the dead, to ascend into heaven, and to send his spirit down to live in a life of men and women who place their faith and trust in him. What that means for their life what does redemption mean? How does Jesus want to transform them? And I think the result is found there that throughout that year of unpacking the greatness of the gospel, they are changed into little Christ. So I'll conclude it this way. Um, I'm, I'm about to commit uh, a communication sin before you, so any professor I ever had of communication uh, would probably berate me for um, what, I, how, what I'm about to do. And this is it. I'm about to take two stories, blend them into one. So there you go, okay? But I, I rest in secure of who I am in Christ, so it doesn't matter what they think, right? So when I was in fifth grade, um, my, uh, my family had a, a very interesting family move next door to us. And they moved in right next door to us. And they had a seventh grader that I would say he was really interesting. And you may be like, why was he interesting? This is why. Any time my sister, my mom, or myself would be out in our front yard, or maybe I was shooting baskets in our driveway, and the interesting seventh grade neighbor was out in, in his yard or driveway, uh, he, would, he would say cuss words at us, and, and I'm, I'm going to put on a, a parent filter here. He, he would give us some inappropriate sign language. He would tell us we were number one. And you're like, why? I don't know. He was interesting. I have no clue why. But there's a season in which he would do this often to us. Until one day I, I was out running errands with my dad. We pulled into our driveway. My dad put our truck in park, and he turned to me and said, Son, I want you to stay here. Um, I have something I need to take care of. Because the interesting seventh grade neighbor was actually out in his yard. And so my dad got out of the truck. He walked up to the neighbor. By the way, do you think I stayed in the truck? No way. I got as close to the action as I could. And this is what I heard my dad say that day. He stood in front of this young man. He said, son, if you ever do any of this again to my wife, my daughter, or my son, I will break every finger on your hands. My dad was not a violent man, by the way. And I remember he, he turned. I mean, the look on that young man's face was like, oh, gosh. And my dad turned, dropped the mic, by the way, um, <laughs> And he came walking, and I remember having the thought, man, that's my dad. Like, that's my day stood up for our family. That's my dad. Now, pause that story for a moment. Again, I was in fifth grade. So fast forward just a couple years ago, so like 10 or so. Um, much more than that, by the way. My wife, Kara, was out. Uh, she was gone uh, for the weekend. She had a kind of a reunion weekend with some college friends of hers. 
And so I don't know why, but she entrusted three boys with me. And so, um, Dad, you understand, Mom's gone. You're not surviving. You're thriving. Or you're not thriving. You are surviving. Excuse me, right? Just trying to make sure you don't go to direct care, urgent care, whatever, emergency room. So I decided to take our boys to the pool and just trying to kill some time. So we're there. We have a, a, a neighborhood pool we're hanging out at. And then all of a sudden, as we're swimming, there's a group of high school students come walking into the pool facility. They make their way over to the hot tub, and then for some reason, they decided to bring their own music. Gotta love, I bring my own music to the pool person, right? So they fire up their own music for all of us to enjoy, apparently. And I had this moment where I started to feel old because I'm like, man, I can't really make out the lyrics of these new songs. And so I'm, I'm... I'm three songs in now, and I'm like, okay, I'm starting to realize a lot of the lyrics that they were playing were extremely demeaning and degrading to women. They are calling women certain names. And I thought, well, I don't want my boys to hear that. So I got out of the water. I said, boys, stay here. Got out of the water. I walked over to the hot tub where they're congregating, hanging out, listening to their music. Remember on the way there, I was like, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me. I just got to remind myself. <laughs> Some of you guys got that reference there, okay? And so I used to be cool in high school. I'm not cool anymore, all right? And so I, I walk up to the hot tub. I, I lean down. I'm like, hey, guys, hey, guys. And, excuse me. And they're like, yes. I said, hey, I'm cool with you guys playing your music here. It's fine. Um, but do you, you see those three boys in the water? And they're like, yeah. And I said, well, those are my sons. I feel responsible for them. So I'm going to ask, any music you play, keep it clean. And like, oh, yeah, absolutely. So I said, man, if you have any Sandy Patty, Michael W. Smith, like, <laughs> no, no, I didn't say that. I wanted to. But, um, so I turned around. I, I, I walked back, got in the pool, and, and our boys said, Dad, what, what's going on? I said, well, some of the music they were playing, just, just don't think it was really appropriate and definitely didn't show value and honor to women at all. And our middle son, Nate, I'll never forget this. He turned to me and said, hey, Dad, it was, was kind of like we were you and you were your dad. I didn't know what he was talking about. I said, wait, what are you talking about, buddy? And he said, remember that story about your interesting neighbor that you've told us multiple times? I'm a dad. I repeat myself, okay? He said, you remember that? And I said, yeah. And he said, it's kind of like we were you, but now you, you are your dad. Tears welled up in my eyes when he said that. Because what I began to realize, my dad had done something so many years ago that apparently was very impactful to me. That years later, just naturally mimicked it and lived it out. I lived out what my dad had done in my life. That's exactly what it means to be a little Christ. That we begin to dive deeper and deeper and deeper into the depths of the gospel. Into God's word. Understanding who Jesus is. What he has done. And then over time, through the work of the Holy Spirit in our life, I think what happens is we start to be transformed to be more like Jesus. Again, to think more like Jesus. To speak more like Jesus, to live more like Jesus, to be motivated by the things that that Jesus is motivated by, to such a degree that we become little Christ. In other words, we begin to live out our identity. He has already called you a little Christ, but now you grow 
to reflect that more and more. And I think here's the brilliance of, of what happened in Antioch. Again, it does not appear to be that the Christians were the ones that gave themselves the term little Christ, but the people of Antioch who said the only way we can describe them is they reflect the Savior that they have placed their life in the hands of. They look more like Jesus. Do you desire that? It's Frisco Bible. I pray that here in this city, And in the Metroplex, people would not know you as church attendees. They would know you as little Christ. A bunch of little Jesuses walking around here who reflect him for his glory, not your own. I'd like to ask the ushers to please come forward and let's pray together. Lord, we we pray for that. I pray for that in my own life. I pray for that in the lives of the men and women here, my brothers and sisters. That you would grow us more and more and more to be little Christ. God, thank you for the way that you are patient with us. Thank you for the way that you are very intentional with us as well. The, The seasons of life you take us through to grow us to be more like you the successes, the failures, all of it designed to grow us to be little Christ. And I pray, Lord, for, um, for this church that, God, you would use them in the city of Frisco and in the Metroplex and across the globe, places like Uganda, where people would see little Christ and they would desire to know you, Jesus. We pray all this in your name, Christ. Amen.